And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, I feel like it's not just the snack cracker and the shot of Welch's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a full meal and it's designed to be a place where we share all those experiences together. And if Jesus is the host of the table, then we get to see him there. And something is happening here every time we gather for a meal and tell the story of Jesus. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF Life. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, visit cbf.net slash seminary dash resources. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Greg Mamula. He's the Associate Executive Minister for American Baptist Churches of Nebraska. He's also a contributing writer for Word and Way, and he's the author of the new book coming out in April, Table Life, An Invitation to Everyday Discipleship, to be published by Judson Press April 14th, but already available for pre-order. Now, we've had Greg on the program before, way back in episode 46 in December of 2018. You can find that at podcast.wordandway.org. And so if you want to learn more about Greg as an individual, his ministry and personal faith journey, you can find some of that back in that earlier episode, episode 46. But in this conversation, we're going to primarily talk about his new book that is coming out. I've had a chance to read the book, and I think that you'll find it to be an interesting and insightful work as he helps us think about the heart of discipleship and this idea of coming together around the table. He's going to be talking about that concept in this interview. So I hope you enjoy it and that you'll check out his book coming out later this month. So here's my conversation with Greg Mamula, author of Table Life. Well, Greg, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me. So we talked in the previous episode a lot about your role, and so we won't cover all of that ground. But I do want to note that, you know, it's been a little over a year now of the pandemic, and I know that has changed a lot of things. And so, you know, first of all, how are you doing? How are your family and loved ones been doing during this you know, very unusual season of life and ministry? Yeah, like many people, we we did stay at home for a while at the beginning of 2020, March, April, kind of parts of May, I think we were, my wife and I both worked from home. The kids were out of school, but fortunately, neither of us have, not, not, nobody in our family has contracted COVID in any way. Um, none of our family members have. Our neighbors have stayed pretty safe as well. So um, blessings there for that. But uh, we've been very cautious. We wear the mask when we go around. Uh, ministry's changed. Um, obviously, we do a lot more online, a lot more Zoom. 
Sunday schools and preaching experiences, worship experiences, like everybody, um, done more of that. Um, there's been some travel that's picked back up in the last few months as churches, you know, open with social distancing and those sort of things. So a little bit of that's coming back. And now with Easter uh, imminent, you know, um, I think a lot of churches are trying to be open for that, uh, even if it's maybe uh, limited capacity or outdoor experiences. So we're, we're looking forward to those experiences. But um, I think it's been interesting mostly for us to observe um, how important discipleship has has changed and and how important it, it remains because worship experiences seem to be difficult and they don't always relate and communicate well through an online experience but small group discipleship seems to be thriving because of the zoom opportunities and social media opportunities for those things so kind of interesting to see the emphasis on on those well, I know that in your role with American Baptists there in Nebraska, that you have probably been able to see a lot of churches as they've been experimenting yeah. during the pandemic. And I wonder, is, is there is there a church or an effort that you found, well, that was really innovative, really interesting in this particular moment? Yeah, for, for online worship experiences, um, I think there's a church in and around the Kansas City area. We did actually... Uh, a podcast with them on my podcast, Mission in Five, this First Baptist Church in Gardner. And they've done some really clever uh, online experiences where they combine um, live preaching moments with recorded music in advance. And so they've created these kind of worship music videos, if you will. Uh, volunteer led the whole thing. It's it's pretty amazing. A lot of the children's stuff has been pre-recorded during the week. So they'll get all the students together for like a Zoom meeting um, and ask them a bunch of questions and kids are kids and uh, children's uh, messages don't really change, rather they're Zoom or in person. And so kids say crazy stuff, but they they, they splice all that together for, for worship. Um, I've seen other churches like Benson Baptist Church in Omaha. They've done some really clever, intentional worship experiences. They got a lot of take home bag kind of experiences where they send home. Um, this is how to do a certain um, spiritual discipline. And then um, they send them with the resources, the candle or the bread or the recipe for a meal or the kids activity, whatever it is. But I think they go the extra effort because they demonstrate how to use these in the home and why they're important and the history of this discipline. And so I think they've been pretty clever in that way. And, and so I think that's been kind of the fun stuff to watch. I've seen some other churches do some pretty neat outdoor stuff um, in pods. So they'll, they'll go outside and and do groups of, you know, eight or 10, and then have, you know, a good distance away, another pod of eight or 10. So, but that's largely contingent upon parking lot space or being in a park or something like that. Uh, good weather. Yeah, good weather. I mean, that doesn't happen. There are no outdoor events in the winter in Nebraska, for sure. Um, and and so I've been really excited about some of that. It's been It's been neat to see how they've adapted uh, some churches, um, they've just, you know, put up the camera and, and recorded the live worship experience. And then others have gone really out of their way to to make it really interactive in some way, you know, rather through the comment sections of, of a feed or, uh, again, these disciplines at home. And I think all of our churches have tried a little bit of everything. Well, very good. I mean, it really has been a, an unusual season to be a minister and and I know that a lot of pastors have been 
been working in a, a lot of new ways and in, in ways that they weren't taught in seminary and, and how to how to preach and minister and worship in these times. And, and I want to talk about your book. That's the main thing we're going to talk about, which we, we can maybe mention. It's been delayed in publication because of the pandemic. That right. It's also an interesting topic because it's it, in some ways the the main kind of metaphor of the book is something we haven't been able to do for the past year as well. So we're talking about table life. An invitation to everyday discipleship. You, you made a comment a moment ago about discipleship during the pandemic, but the metaphor of, of gathering around the table has not been something that's been easy to do, obviously, for the past year. So I wonder first you can tell us, what is this book? What do you mean when you talk about table life? Yeah, um, so table life was kind of a culmination of many things that, that was going on in my life three or four years ago and, and even before that where I, I started my, my doctor of ministry work at Northern Seminary and needed a project. So <laughs> I was working towards something during, during those years. I ended up graduating in 2018. So this is like a 2014 to 2018 window. I was looking for a project. Also, we had just moved to uh, a new neighborhood. And so we were looking for ways to connect with our neighbors and our church. And so this idea of, of eating with people and sharing our stories and kind of listening and getting to know them kind of became the foundation of, of table life. So, so I, I'm a big proponent of gathering around the table, um, using that as a catalyst because it's just a natural place for people to tell stories, to say, you know, who are you and how did you move to this neighborhood? Uh, how are you connected to this church? I mean, it's really interesting when, when you go to a church for a really long time, um, you may not know people as well as you think you do, even though you've both gone there for a decade or two decades. You, you don't know, why did you join this church in the first place? Why did you move to this town? When did you become a Christian? You know, these kind of story things that we we, we may not know about the people we're in fellowship with. And so it creates a space to intentionally tell those stories. And for sure, the last year has been very difficult about gathering at the table, which is part of why the, the book was delayed is it's hard to sell a book about gathering together when the the wisdom is to stay apart, right? <laughs> so I don't blame the publishers for that. Um, but uh, now that is, as we're moving more towards being allowed to gather again safely, um, certainly keeping that in mind. I mean, I, I don't by any means say let's abandon all common sense right now and start gathering around tables if it's not safe, but um, where it's safe, where it's okay, uh, certainly gather together. And um, it, it creates community in a way few activities do. You, you don't necessarily get to know somebody as well in a Sunday school class because the purpose is the discipleship or the education and a worship experience. The purpose is worship and everybody's facing the same direction towards the stage. You know, it doesn't happen maybe the same in um, even when, when you're doing a service project, maybe you have a food pantry or something like that in your church. Um, there's quick interactions with your co-laborers and even the guests of something like that type of ministry, um, but it's not long enough to, to grow deep relationships. So the table then causes everybody to slow down and take that time. And then what Table Life does is then capitalize on that opportunity. It expands the length of a normal meal, of course, um, by about an hour. <laughs> so it's it's not something that you can do in, in 15 minutes, but it is something that um, you can do in an, 
an hour or two uh, with with a group of people. Yeah, and obviously the table and this idea of of gathering around the table as a group, with, whether it be a banquet or some forth, is is a very strong biblical metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I mean the the first century banquet feast was very common cultural norm. Uh, in Jesus's day. And so some of the stuff that he's doing when he gathers people to the table is is using a very common element um, and, and using it as a metaphor. It's using it as even a very literal experience for people because the banquet table was a, a, um, a very common thing, first of all, but it was also a very limiting thing. Like guest lists were, were the result of um, either uh, being in a class or being in a family or or being part of an ethnic group or even being a political exercise, you know. And so Jesus saying, all right, this is a normal banquet experience, um, has a lot of limits to then say, no, we're going to open the table to Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, men and women, um, you know, as, as Paul describes it, but also Jesus having all those people. And that's what kind of caused so much frustration for the people that watched Jesus um, is he was indiscriminate with who came to his table. If he would have had meals that invited just religious leaders, they would have seen him as a religious leader. If they would have invited people who were just common lay folk, they would have seen him as such. If he invited people who were kind of the the lower class of society, the poor, the lame, the sick, even even people who were looked down upon perhaps culturally like prostitutes and tax collectors and these sort of, they would have put him in that community and it would have been fine because he was eating with common people. They would have made him that. But Jesus ate with everybody and invited all those people to the same table, which was kind of unheard of in his culture. And that's why banquet was such an important um, metaphor for Jesus. Plus, then you have Isaiah 25, I think, speaks a lot into what Jesus is doing, um, where the eschatological hope of um, Isaiah in 20, chapter 25 is that God, the Lord, uh, or a messianic figure being Jesus, is, is the host of the table. And all nations, all people are going to come to that table. And the shroud that covers all people is going to be removed and death will be conquered. Like that's the goal of that table is just everybody's there. And so uh, Jesus does that in real life and kind of very prophetic action, lives it out. And so he is teaching a lot by simply having a dinner with people. Yeah. And you unpack this in a lot of different ways in the book. I've got the PDF copy that you sent me. So I had a chance to look at it. Although you were just showing me, we're, we can see each other. Everyone else is just listening. You you have the hard copy. So even though it's been delayed, I do. it is real. You showed it to me on screen. So this book really does <laughs> exist. Uh, as I was reading through it, I mean, you, you unpack this idea in a lot of different ways. And I wanted to kind of highlight a couple of them. There's a lot more for people to, we don't want to give away the whole book so that way they still go buy it. But one of the things you talk about in there is the importance of narrative. And, and as you're talking about that in that chapter, this idea of reading scripture in community and how that's different, because, you know, we could say, well, we have the Bible. I can just sit at home, read the Bible and pray and I'm good. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that idea of why it's important that we gather together in a community to read and discuss the scripture aloud. Yeah. Um, reading scripture together as a community is, is as formative as reading it alone. 
so the Christian church has, has long read scripture in community. Um, I grew up in a tradition where it really emphasized reading it individually in addition to that. So we would always do quiet times, these sort of things. And, and lots of churches have that tradition. And so I really think, though, that one of the things that the emphasis on doing personal quiet times and devotions, uh, one of the side effects of that is that we tend to not read as much in groups um, unless we have like small groups, ministries and these sort of things. But sometimes even those experiences lead us to um, having it still be a primarily informational teaching experience and not formational. And so we don't discern scripture together as a group as much as we go to be taught information about scripture. And then we equate discipleship with being the person who knows the most about the Bible rather than the people who engage and live it the most. Um, and again, you know, having a demon in Jewish context of the New Testament, I, I'm a big fan of information <laughs> for sure. Um, but we need to also read it formationally. And I think discerning together as a community is, is vital to that. And, and part of the importance of that is that we all experience life a little differently. If we've learned anything over the last year, it's that people see the world in very different ways, and they experience it different ways, and and they don't all have the same maybe backgrounds, um, and 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 they don't have the same day to day experience of life. And so when we go to interpret scripture, um, that stuff gets brought in, of course. And so when we get to hear our brothers and sisters telling us that my life is different than yours, and I experience it differently, and because of that, I get this kind of hope from the text, or I I get this kind of strength when I read the Sermon on the Mount or Paul's letters, or I, I react to Paul's statement about um, slavery or women differently because of my background, um, then we need to hear that and discern together um, what's happening in the text. But it's also context matters. People in the Midwest might read a text differently than people on the coast or in another country, of course. And so um, hearing all those voices together as you discern what is God doing in this community um, is, is important because how we interpret the text for its application in this neighborhood might be different than how they apply it to the even just the next neighborhood over. And so bringing all that together, I think, is important uh, when it comes to discerning Scripture as a community. Yeah, I really like that. And I mean, obviously, you know, we both host a podcast of conversations, so we're interested in hearing from other perspectives, but to yeah. do that in the context of studying scripture, you know, because, you know, Paul, Paul, as much as we may want to, may not want to admit it, wasn't a, a white Baptist in the Midwest writing in English. So, you know, I mean, right. there's definitely some different perspectives that could come in on how we read uh, some of this. And I'm, I'm sure you've had experiences like this where someone says something in a group and you're like, I've never read the text that way. Yeah. I mean, I think the big, big aha moment for me on that was Luke chapter 11. Uh, I was at a pastor's thing and um, that beginning of the story where Jesus is sending out the 70 and the 72 and he says, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. My whole life, I had heard that as a metaphor for evangelism. Go out and 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 spread the word because the harvest is, I need workers. And it was always this commission to go out and share the gospel. And then somebody said, what if it was an actual field? 
outside of a town and they needed to harvest their grain. And if they don't harvest it, it's going to waste and the people won't have enough to eat over the winter. And that came from a farmer that I was doing this with, um, who, who was also had become a pastor. So he had this ties to agriculture and it just blew my mind. <laughs> and so it's, it's little things like that, that you experience like, okay, yeah, maybe this story is more about working side by side with people than it is just a metaphor for evangelism. I think both can be true, uh, the metaphor, but also the reality that maybe just maybe laboring with somebody is a great way to get to know them before you share the gospel with them. Yeah. Another one of your chapters in the book, you, you deal with the issue of communion. When Jesus starts that it is around the table, you know, which, uh, what is it? Mark Lowry used to joke about the, we call it the Lord's supper. And then it's this little bitty snack, but that, but when Jesus does it, like it's part of a full blown Passover meal. Right. I wonder if you could talk about the importance of communion. Some some traditions more than Baptists center communion in their services, and so I wonder if you could talk about that part of table life and experiencing table life from that angle. Yeah. So I mean, we use the term liturgical to describe churches whose primary purpose of worship is to come to the table. Everything leads to the table. So. There are traditions that take communion every single week. Whereas Baptist, I guess we, we lead to the sermon, right? That's the... Right, yeah. That's the big part of the Baptist tradition. And um, one of the authors I, I kind of follow and, and listen to is a guy named Sky Jatani and a um, very gifted writer. And he's got some pretty neat insights on on the church in America right now. And he he discusses why the sermon became so central for for Protestants, especially Baptists or anybody in the Baptistic Protestant tradition is because technology shifted, you know, and there was a supply and demand situation um, during that, you know, 16th century with the printing press. And so suddenly everybody had more access to the Bible than they've ever had previously. And so they needed people to explain it. And, and this is why Baptists emphasize everybody has a priesthood of the believer, the right to read scripture and interpret it on their own and these sort of things. But that wasn't really an idea that was even possible before the printing press, because not everybody had the same access to the scriptures. They needed priests to bring it to them. And so once everybody had more access to it, the sermon became more important. And now we're in a place where he says, you know, 400 years later, supply and demand's the other way. We have so much preaching content available to us, um, and there's less demand for it. As, as I mean, if you want to think about it, marketing terms, consumers of preaching has gone way down. Um, so what is the purpose of church then, if not to preach? And I think it brings back the importance of the table. Um, and so I think um, because the table tells the whole story of scripture, you know, you've got people coming together, they're Jesus's host. And, and we bring ourselves before that fallen and in need of repair and also celebration. I mean, everything happens at tables, right? I mean, we, we have, we go to the table for celebrations. We have cake, we have big meal, we have barbecue, whatever it is, we celebrate. But we also grieve 
at tables. We come together and we mourn the loss of loved ones and trauma and tragedy and everything in between, right? And um, it all happens there. And so the table then is something that holds every human experience. It's the only thing big enough to hold all of it. And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, I feel like it's not just the snack cracker and the shot of Welch's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a full meal and it's designed to be a place where we share all those experiences together. And if Jesus is the host of the table, then we get to see him there and something is happening here every time we gather for a meal and tell the story of Jesus. And so in the book, I talk about the importance of not trying to be a cosmic bouncer of the table, that if Jesus let all these people to the table, maybe we should not try to spend so much energy determining who can and cannot have access to communion um, and, and the table experience. I also talk a little bit about just how the table then breaks down barriers one of my favorite paintings is, is by Andre Rublev. It's the painting of the Trinity. And so there's these three angelic beings around a table, but that front side is open. And so if, if you like art and you're into that sort of thing, um, you'll notice that a lot of art draws you to a specific point in the, the work. And so this particular work, you focus is at the front of that table where it's open. And so whoever stands before it gets to be a guest at the table where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the hosts. And so I, I just think that's an inviting image. And um, you get to choose whether or not you go to that table. But I think um, there's always somebody who's going to say, I don't want to go. You know, And as a Baptist, I have to give them that freedom. But I think we're in danger when we start telling people you can't go. And so I think that that's something to wrestle with when we talk about table and communion and stuff. You, you made the comment about supply and demand with preaching. And I, I know you were writing all this before the pandemic. And, you know, it, it seems that it has accelerated that issue. I mean, I, I can, I can on Sunday go to church pretty much wherever I want to from my living room. Yeah. I mean, there, there are, there are more preaching opportunities available to me now. But what I can't do from my living room or, you know, my bedroom, still my pajamas or wherever I might worship on Sunday morning is, is what you're writing about. And that's this idea of gathering together in community at the table like that, that doesn't work virtually in the same way that hearing a sermon might work virtually. You, you talk about social media and, uh, you know, hashtag table life, you know, right? So, right, so you are thinking about technology, but obviously all of us are thinking about technology even more now. Right. Yeah, it's you're exactly right. I mean, you, you pointed out the whole book was written before March 2020. It was done. It was in the editing phase. Um, but in May 2020, I wrote a new chapter for it. <laughs> it got fit into there about trying to extend table to the online experience. And I think that's been a learning edge for me is um, just talking about how we, we do in fact live online. It is a space. And so to try and wrap your mind around that sometimes is a cognitive dissonance there. And there's some pushback um, that the internet is, is not a real place. It's figurative. It's a substitute for real worship 
or real discipleship, but we dwell there. We work there. We do a lot there. And so how can you have community there? I, I think so. So then the question then becomes, what is the church for? If it's not for preaching, because I can get preaching anywhere. And chances are, as much as I love to preach, if if I'm pastoring a church, my congregation will find a better preacher than me. You know, that's possible um, and probable, <laughs> you know, um, and, and then maybe even the same with with teaching content. I'm, I, I love to teach, but chances are there's a better teacher out there on right now media or seminary now or whatever platform. Um, and, and they're very good at what they do. So then what are we doing at church? If they can get discipleship and they can get preaching and they can get better music than my 79-year-old pianist can offer, <laughs> you know, why do we go to church? And it's for community. That's This is the good news that, that your church is not designed to be a content factory. I wrote about this for, for, for Word and Way, actually. So go check out that article. It's really good. Um, at wordandway.org. Yeah. Wordandway.org. Uh, you can hear about why your church is not a content factory. But you're right. I mean, we need community. So as the book is coming out and we are, it seems like seeing hope on the horizon. You know, people are getting vaccinated. Church, more churches are opening up. You know, things are, are starting to, to, to improve. What are your hopes moving forward for the for the church particularly? What 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 would you like to see as you know? I think a lot of times we talk about well, we're ready to return to normal, and, and you know, part of the the pushback on that would be well, maybe we don't want to go back to exactly the old normal. So what what could be a new normal? Things that we've learned that we've either learned to do well with technology during this time, or that we've noticed we've learned that we weren't doing well. What would you? What are your hopes for for churches moving forward? Yeah, I don't want to go back to normal. You know, that's not something that I I want or even hope for because to go back would be then to ignore all the things that have come to the surface in the last year, and some of those things have been painful to learn. You know, the injustices, the uh, women leadership continue to have this glass ceiling. Um, the inequalities, uh, all the things we've learned. And so I can't, I don't want to go back and pretend like we didn't learn those things. So, so we need to live into that. Um, but I think some of the things that, that I hope for our churches is that they continue to wrestle with those types of big picture issues. But I think what Table Life has to offer the future of the church and, and, and what I hope to see is that we deal with those things at the micro level as we engage with one another over meals we tell our stories with honesty and and we hear the stories of others and maybe we create reconciliation between just two people or four people or a hundred person church as they navigate the differences that they've experienced over the last year because honestly even fellow congregants have spent a lot of emotional and digital media energy <laughs> saying some pretty brutal things to one another. And so there's going to be a season where we need to come back together and, and, and confess and repent to one another. We've been pretty bad 
to one another with some of our conversations or, and I guess would be better, um, celebrate the ways that we did it well, celebrate the ways that, that we got online and had church and had community and the ways that we continued to offer food bank services and, and whatever else that our churches did that was good things for children, things for senior adults, whatever it was, and celebrate those things. And so I don't want to go back to normal, but I want to embrace a a better and new normal. And it's going to be a hybrid of online and in-person. I mean, so many churches were halfway there anyway, or even all the way there. So I I think the other thing that I hope for is that uh, we have more, we, 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 briefly touched on this earlier, but just this idea that the internet is other, it's, it's a different space. Um, we need to be better Christians online period. And so we might need internet pastors, if you will, and find a way to, to, to be disciples of Jesus in those spaces. And it might require having a unique new pastoral role of, you know, pastor of social media or whatever it is, and, and guiding people how to engage in these things in a Christ-like manner. How, how do I do my job from home Christ-like? You know, how do I engage in social media Christ-like, these sort of things. And so, and how do I, like people go there and, and they share their wounds and they're very open online even. And like a pastor comes besides them online and, and walks with them through that. So I, I, I want to see those kind of things, but I certainly hope that the community aspect, um, those smaller celled things of the local church and even the small groups within a local church uh, continue to be strengthened because I think I think that's where we see the change, the life change is in the smaller setting. Well, I hope that as people are thinking about what they want the church to look like in the next iteration, that they can check out Table Life and why don't you help us figure out where where can people pick up pick up this book? This interview will come out before April 13th. So there are a few options right now and then maybe more options to ordering the book after that date. Right. So, I mean, t- to learn more about the book itself, I have a website, table-life.org. And you can go there and you can learn about my other writing projects as well, including with Word and Way. And then... You can, there's links there to order from all your online distributors. Um, uh, Judson Press is is the primary distributor. So if you go to judsonpress.com, you can order the book directly from them. And then the various online distributors, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, those sort of things, Christian books, um, those are going to become more available beginning April 14th. So if it says out of stock or unavailable, get it straight from Judson or go back after April 14th and those books will be available in e-reader and print editions. Very good. Well, thank you, Greg, for being with us on the program and for all, all that you do for writing at Word and Way and, and your other work. Well, good luck on the launch of the book. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Table Life and Greg's other writings, as he mentioned, at table-life.org. You can also find links in the show notes at podcast.wordandway.org. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review. It really does help more people to find the show. 
As I mentioned, you can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we'd greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, you really are missing out. And I have a special offer for you. Get half off your first year. Just go to tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback for this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.